This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and scouting podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Guy Clark, alongside me, Josh Williams, uh, Analyzing Anfield guru, as we're going to look back on the win over Burnley and ahead to the final day of the season against Crystal Palace, with Liverpool, of course, out to secure Champions League qualification. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing good, mate. It's nice to be away from the host here this week. So, uh, you know, how does it feel to be standing in? Quaking in my boots, mate. It's it's one of those for you, isn't it? Nice, <laughs> easy one. Sit back. Now, we'll, as I say, we're, we've got plenty to kind of get into these final games of the season, the win over Burnley, and now looking ahead to the game with Palace. But before we even, I suppose, get into that, I just wanted to ask you how the stress levels have been. I know over the last few weeks, you and Dave doing these, and Dave's been saying, yeah, I'm keeping all right, and you've gone, ah, I'll, I'll move over how I'm feeling. But Liverpool have picked it up just at the right time, haven't they? Yeah, it's been a weird season. Um you know, lately, I mean, Liverpool are top of the form table at the minute. And I, I was saying last night to uh, Paul Gorse as we were on our way to football, it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way. It really doesn't. It doesn't feel like Liverpool are in form. Um, it doesn't feel like we are. Like I think, I think after the Burnley game, Sean Dyche said Liverpool were, were pairing. That was his exact words. And just watching us, we do look better than things, but it doesn't feel like we're pairing. And maybe it's because I've seen. What Liverpool do look like when they're pairing. Um and this doesn't feel like that, but at the same time, we are gradually just crawling over the line in many in, in many areas, um, scoring late goals and stuff. Obviously, the Burnley game was a bit more comfortable, but yeah, it's been um, it's been a very weird end to the season, and the fact that we've even got a chance of qualifying for the Champions League again just feels very strange. But you know, I'll I'll take it every day of the week. Yeah, six wins. In eight, I think it, I'm right in saying four wins in a row in the Premier League. First time Liverpool have done that all season, which, as you say, is absolutely ridiculous. But given, as I say, six of those wins that have come in those last eight games, it, Liverpool have scored at least two or more goals in those. And I suppose that's one of the key things, isn't it? As much as, and we'll get on to talking about Nat Phillips and Reese Williams in a bit, they have still needed to start finding goals and goals from all around the team. Yeah, well, even the players who you know, throughout the season have maybe struggled to find a net and have struggled to really contribute when Liverpool have been needing them. Even those players of late have just started to chip in with a few attacking returns. Roberto Firmino, I think, has scored a few recently. Um, Thiago, who we've, we've spoke about quite a lot on this podcast throughout the year. Well, I'm sure we'll get into him with various reasons behind, I suppose, what's happened to his season. But, you know, even he scored recently the other week nearly scored against Burnley as well. So it's it is a lot easier when you've got goals across the park. Even set pieces, you know, we we went I think our last set piece goal might have been Crystal Palace when we beat them seven nil. So for that next one to come when <laughs> from Alison Becker, we haven't actually I don't think we've yeah. had a podcast since then actually. No. So for for Alison to score the next one and then the following week now Phillips has scored a header from, I think, if it was from a set piece or, the, or maybe the second delivery of a set piece. It's just nice. It's just it makes it a lot easier if you've got goals coming from different areas. 
No, definitely. I don't think a lot of people saw Alison Becker coming up on the score sheet, albeit sort of hats off to the, the Liverpool social media team. They did have the graphic ready, so they, <laughs> they certainly were prepared. But let's let's get into the Burnley game then. 3-0 win. And I think when you look at it and you then look back on it and think, our oh, 3-0 win over Burnley, actually, why was everyone getting a bit agitated and a bit nervy before going to Turf Moor? Because they've not actually got a great record against the top six sides, as many of us think they do. But Liverpool took the chances that came along, which really hasn't kind of been the tale of the uh, season so far, has it? Well, first half, the first half of the game, I think maybe first half an hour, that wasn't that wasn't the case. It was it was more of the same in terms of Liverpool generating a fair amount, but struggling to find a net. Um, but it seems to be affecting the players less, or maybe on the mental side of late, and they seem to be just getting through it, pushing past it, and. Um, yeah, you mentioned Turf more there. My my main worry going into it was, I suppose, the, the benefits that I've seen delivered by the likes of Van Dijk and Joel Matip at, at Turf more and how Liverpool would cope without those two players because Burnley's, Burnley's attack is, is aerial. You know, it's an aerial assault in many ways. The ball spends more time in the sky than it does on the floor um, and they're comfortable with that. You know, they get results that way. But Liverpool have, you know, Liverpool's past results. I think a few seasons ago we lost maybe two 0 there, and um, there was a season where I think it was either Dejan Lovren or Ragnar Klavan scored the winner in the last kick of the game. But that was around the period when Liverpool just simply had less aerially dominant centre backs. Um, so I was a bit concerned going into this. Although Nat Phillips has proved to be a monster in the air, Reese Williams is still very much a kid. Neither of them are as strong as Van Dijk or Matip in the air, despite Nat Phillips' strength. Um, so I just wasn't sure what would come out of it, but obviously Liverpool, you know, find a way, found a way through. And once you get the first goal and you take a lead, it does make it a lot easier, which hasn't been the case of late. And I think one of the big things that probably may well have made it more nervy was, of course, uh, Nick Pope not available at the moment for Burnley. Bailey Peacock Farrell had been in goal, but he shipped four against Leeds and a lot of talk about him conceding 14 goals in four games. He was then dropped and uh, Norris was put in goal. Will Norris was put in goal for Burnley. And I mean, every shot on target, three shots against him, three goals. It, not really what Sean Dyche would have wanted. And I think a lot of Liverpool fans, when they saw the team, you thought, oh, this unheard of and unheralded goalkeeper is probably going to turn into sort of prime Gigi Buffon or something but in the end Liverpool were ruthless with the shots on target as you say there were a few that were missed early on but they just continued to plug away and continued to create it and in the end got the uh, got the rewards for it Yeah and that's it that's what you've got to do um, I think Roberto Firmino in particular it was nice to see him score even though I will say his opening goal it, it should have been saved and I think Nick yeah. Pope probably saves it Um so Liverpool get away with a lucky one there. And I think even going into the Crystal Palace game, it's obviously not nice for the lad, but Eberetti Eze is going to be out. Really good player. Uh, there's a rumour that Ben Teche is going to be out. He's in great form at the minute. Obviously, when Liverpool faced Burnley, they were without um, Nick Pope. So And Alisson scored that at West Brom. So we're benefiting from luck at the minute, certainly, in many areas. Um and we just need to keep pressing on, really. It's 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 business end of the season, and it's it kind of gets to the point really where, obviously, we 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 look at performances on this show, but it, it does get to a point where 
you kind of just need just need results now. That's kind of just to be all and end all, really. It's one of those as well, isn't it? I've got the understat XG table in front of me, and I always find it difficult to kind of look at the XG sort of through the course of the season until you're getting towards a complete set, which, of course, with one game to go, we are now. And, I mean, you look at it for Liverpool, expected goals for 70. They're underperforming that by four because they've got 66. And then goals against, they should have conceded 46 according to expected goals. They've conceded 42, so actually four fewer in that case. And they've got 66 points, which is where they are expected to be. So as you say, getting the luck now, but they definitely weren't getting it earlier in the season. And the old adage, these things balance themselves out through the course of the season, may well ring true for Liverpool. Exactly. You know, we've flagged a few times on this podcast throughout the season that a lot of Liverpool's performances have been largely fine. And um, but Liverpool have suffered from absolutely horrible luck to the extent that it it starts to you start to doubt yourself when you're saying that because it it was persistent and persistent. But you know, I thought Michael Arteta, Arsenal boss, funny enough guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought he said recently, but uh, well, he was spot on. I, he said, um, well, upon Arsenal's game with Liverpool, he was talking about Liverpool's struggles. I think he was asked about you know, Liverpool's form and stuff at the time. And he said, you know, from a coaching perspective, L- Liverpool is still comfortably the best, if not the second best, across various different departments That, that in terms of coaching. But it's just, I suppose, at both ends, both penalty boxes, Liverpool were out of form, let's say, and certainly suffering from that look that you've just mentioned that, thankfully, is levelled out. And, Although it feels like a bit of a miracle that Liverpool might get fourth. If you do look at the performance numbers, if I was to look at the, the numbers of the season now, without seeing a single game all season, without seeing how many wins, draws, losses, goals scored, whatever, if I was to just look at the underlying numbers, I would I would be confident that Liverpool have finished inside the top four. So it, it's going to be nice that that will actually happen. Because, you know, I like to see teams get what they deserve, basically. And although Liverpool have suffered from some struggles, the team have still generally performed like a well-coached team. And that's that's the main thing. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Let's dig a bit deeper then into the Burnley game. We're going to, I think, highlight Nat Phillips and Thiago Alcantara, two individuals in particular. But let's start with Phillips. He was given man of the match in the end. And he's a guy who, at both ends of the pitch, in both penalty boxes, is really beginning to make his presence felt. I know at West Brom he had a number of headed opportunities. He nearly won that penalty, didn't he, at Old Trafford that was uh, then ruled out by VAR. But he's a guy who is coming to the fore with goal line blocks and, of course, he then finally got his goal at Burnley. Yeah, well, I, I thought this was Phillips' best game, to be honest. Um, he's he played really well for Liverpool. He's, he's, he's stood in and um, stood up to the job, basically. But I thought this Burnley game, it was a, it was it is an aerial, aerial assault and... Uh, very physical strikers. They do put you under threat. They do, um, what's the word? They just kind of place doubt in your head by the way that they play. The ball's just kind of bouncing off people's shins. Lots of second balls everywhere. Um, lots of danger from set pieces. And just naturally, because of that style of play, I think a lot of players are inclined to just start feeling a bit just uncomfortable and uneasy. 
and maybe errors and mistakes start to materialise and stuff. But I thought Phillips was great, and um, I'm not sure we come out anywhere near as comfortably if Phillips doesn't play in that game, and maybe if Fabinho goes in defence instead or or somebody else. But his aerial su- success, I actually thought, was, was going to be even better than it actually is. He's currently 15th in the league for aerial success. Um, he's won 97 of his duels, lost 37, and his success rate is about 72.4%. Um, there's not much in it, I will say, with the top 15. Um, top of the table, for example, is has got 78.2% success, so it's, it is marginal. But it, it is certainly one of Phillips's biggest biggest strengths. You know, he's very, very honest player and committed, knows his limitations. And to be honest, even though he's clearly limited, I, I feel quite safe w- with him. I don't feel like he's going to collapse. I don't feel like he's going to make a serious error. He, he feels quite reliable, um, and that's that's a big thing for me in the sense of half because I'm I'm obviously a Liverpool fan, so I'm used to past errors for, for, for Liverpool centre backs certainly over a certain period. Um, and Phillips looks like the type of player who should have those errors in his game, but he doesn't really. He just, he's quite a reliable player. Yeah, I don't know if I'm correct in saying this at all but it's it's something that's kind of been in the back of my mind thinking about it for a little while with why Jurgen Klopp maybe didn't go to Phillips a bit earlier is Jurgen Klopp even in his own playing career admittedly like I said I've not seen him but you mentioned that word honest and everything and I think Klopp maybe might see a bit of himself in him type thing albeit Klopp started as a striker and went back to being a defender and everything he always plays down how good a player he was type thing and that's the thing with Phillips he might not look like a Rolls Royce of a defender, but he's certainly very reliable and he, he gets the job done. He makes sure he's on the end of everything. And as we say, he got the, the goal against Burnley as well. But the big thing that stuck out stuck out to me recently was being in there with Reese Williams and certainly the Southampton game, which I think Liverpool get their first clean sheet in a fair while at Anfield in, didn't they? And he sort of seemed to be showing those kind of leadership qualities. Obviously, he's got more experienced fullbacks either side of him in both Trent and Andy Robertson, but he was sort of ordering and telling everyone where they needed to be and everything all of the time and actually being like, right, I'm the guy, the pillar at the heart of this defence, albeit you guys have played a lot more games than I have and I'm going to sort of take control. And I think you kind of forget that that game at Turf Moor was his first Premier League game in front of supporters and in an away environment, just continued to sort of demonstrate all those qualities again. Yeah, and it's 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 an aspect that Liverpool have maybe been lacking of late. Obviously, with the absence of Virgil Van Dijk, Jordan Henderson, these are big players, very vocal players. So, for Phillips to come in, and I do think it's probably helped him the fact that he's alongside Reece Williams because he's almost more out of his depth than Phillips is. So, I think Phillips has almost took it upon himself to to lead the centre back pairing. Based on his own experience, you know, he has got a bit of experience to his game. He's played in the Bundesliga and stuff. Um, I'm going, it might have been the actual, the, the, the second division in Germany, actually. Yeah, it was. When, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Stuttgart anyway, a big club. I was going to um, say, I think, I think that's kind of, just before just cutting in there, sorry, Josh, I think that's kind of been misrepresented as well, that Stuttgart within the second flight in Germany are a huge club and the pressure on them to get out of that division will have been big. So it's not like he hasn't played in pressurised. Obviously, it's different to Liverpool, but it is still a, a pressurised environment to be in, in a dominant side that are expected to win games week in, week out. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I think, uh, you know, just going back to what you said before, in terms of early in the season, Klopp obviously didn't opt to, to include Phillips when he suffered from some injuries. I think it'd be interesting to ask Klopp about that and just to see what he says, just to see if, you know, obviously with hindsight, if you could go back, would Klopp just put his faith in Phillips earlier if he got the second opportunity to do so? Or would he stick with what he did at the time? Because what he did at the time, I, I'll i be honest, I didn't disagree with. I, um, but, but I think it probably, looking back, it probably was more of a short-term move to, you know, to start playing midfielders in the defensive line to bring Fabinho back. I've never had much of an issue with that, especially when the system's so, you know, it's when everyone, when we have possession, everyone's an attacker. When, we, when we're without the ball, everyone's a defender. It kind of is that total football style of play that Liverpool represents. So when we started including the likes of Fabinho as a centre half, I didn't think it was much of an issue. I thought it was getting overplayed a little bit. Um, but I do think over a longer period of time, like what Liverpool have had to suffer from, it probably would have benefited Liverpool a bit more if earlier on Klopp would have basically trusted Phillips and. Um, you know, kept Fabinho in the midfield and all that sort of stuff. It would have been interesting to see how the season would have played out if that would have been his move. Yeah, I think it comes down to the fact there's just so many injuries at Liverpool, doesn't it? Because I agree with what you're saying there on Fabinho. And personally, I don't actually think Fabinho's been playing brilliantly the last few games. No, I, agree. I think I, agree. I think if Jordan Henderson actually was still fit and Fabinho was centre-half and Jordan Henderson was in that six role because last season after he got that injury against Napoli, Henderson basically took that number six deep sitting midfield position upon himself and was arguably one of Liverpool's standout players before football was stopped. And then obviously Fabinho came back into the side because he was rested, wasn't he? Or left out of the home leg with Atletico Madrid, Fabinho with Ox coming in, who of course actually scored the third and final game in this game against Burnley. So I, I think like you say, it'd be very, very fascinating to ask Jurgen Klopp what he would do, but hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? So we'll have to... Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting to see, specifically on the back of the Burnley game, all the talk around him getting a new contract and keeping him for next season and things like that because that's a really delicate topic for me because quite clearly he's doing really well I've just said then you know he's reliable clearly got a lot of aerial strength um, very honest and committed and stuff like that all the nice things that you want but at the same time you have to remove um Emotion. Emotion, sentiment. I suppose, yeah. Sentiment, yeah. That's probably the word I was after. You have to remove that when it comes to giving giving players new contracts and keeping players when you know, like we had to do that with Alana. We had you know, we had to kind of accept, listen, and we had to do the same with storage. Didn't that with Origi, maybe? Maybe yeah. after Yeah, yeah. After the but I think with Origi, I think given his age, we was probably preserving his value. With the league, yeah. thinking that because of what he'd done in big games to Liverpool, we could probably get a fee for this player. I mean, might do that with Phillips. If Phillips was to get a new a new contract, I would be inclined to think it's to preserve his value and so we can get a decent sale from. Um, because I think he's probably proved in the past couple of weeks that he could perform at Premier League level for the right club. I, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if if Sean Dyche was interested looking at the way he performed. Um, but I think when it comes to giving him a new deal. It's just it's tricky because 
he he's not good enough for Liverpool. You know that's that's the crux of it. It's it's not nice to say, but the way Liverpool play on a normal day, you know, Klopp's Liverpool, a centre back has to be so good in terms of just zero weaknesses. They have to be able to defend one v one because everybody else is attacking. They have to be great in the air, which Phillips is. They have to offer a threat from set pieces and be really helpful when defending set pieces. Phillips, again, takes those boxes probably. They have to be quick. They have to be really good on the ball, distribution and all that sort of stuff. Um, And Phillips doesn't take enough of those. You know, he's, he's not a player that Liverpool would go and sign. So... Although he's I'm already be, at the club. I'm going to be controversial, to be honest. And okay, I'm, going go to disagree, I'm going to disagree with you and try and launch the defence. I know <laughs> we obviously have the same hairstyle and I'm starting to grow a bit of a beard like that, Phillips, for those who are watching us on, on YouTube. <laughs> but in terms of him, I know our own Paul Gorst said a lot at the start of the season that after selling Lovren, Liverpool need a Clavan. And I think he's the closest Clavan type player that and I know Liverpool are at a very different stage than when Ragnar Clavan was the fourth choice centre back. But if he's going to be even fifth choice to sit around and be called upon when needed, when Joel Matip continually can't keep himself fit and they might need players to even whether it be Virgil van Dijk coming back from a really long injury, can't play all of the games next season, whether it be league or league and cup games, and just throw him 10 games a season throw him into the fires, let him put them out and and do things. I think certainly if you think even, and maybe it's a separate issue, but Ozan Kabak and the £18 million deal that is sitting on the table there. Well, if you have the ready-made Clavan-type replacement in the building in that Phillips, £18 million, that's what a year of Kylian Mbappe's contract you could pay. <laughs> I'm, I'm only joking <laughs> with that one. But in terms of investing the money elsewhere in the squad, you could say, right, we've, we've actually got a centre-back. We have discovered and we've realised and he's he's OK. Send Reese Williams out on a year or two's loan and maybe see if he would eventually be ready to be a centre-back for Liverpool. Maybe another issue entirely. But personally, I think Phillips has proven himself and kind of deserving of at least a year at it. And in, in the pandemic time that we are, Liverpool looking to keep as much of their transfer budget intact as they can. If it's a case of they're not signing Kabak and putting it towards a forward player, which we're all in agreement that Liverpool could well do with, then that would certainly swell the transfer kitty, wouldn't it? No, I agree. I agree with a lot of what you just said. Make some good points. Um, I think specifically when it comes to him being maybe a fifth a fifth choice, I would have no issue with that. Um I wouldn't, but I think it's when I'm when I'm speaking about him not being good enough for Liverpool. I'm talking, you know, what what do we expect from Liverpool? What are we coming to expect as Liverpool fans? And in my opinion, what I want is to challenge every year for the Premier League and the Champions League business end. So, yeah. if say for example Liverpool gets to the Champions League semi final and Nath Phillips has to play. That is something from an opposition perspective could be targeted, um, and you don't, you just don't really want that. You you want you want to have a squad, you want to have a team that doesn't really have weaknesses, and obviously that will always kind of be the case. Um, but I just think you know, say for example, Liverpool are going for a Premier League title. There's five games left, and we face we have to face City at the Etihad. And our only two fit centre backs are okay, Van Dijk, but he's alongside Phillips. Again, 
I just feel like Pep Guardiola's rubbing his hands a little bit. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to downplay his impact because he, he has been great and I wouldn't be in a rush to sell him. I'll have to check actually now when his contract runs out. Um, 23, two years left. Two years left he's got. See, if, if that's the case then, I would... I wouldn't be in a rush to offer him a new deal, I don't think. Um, wouldn't really be in a rush to sell him unless someone comes in with a really respectable bid. And if if he is happy to do what you've just said, in terms of hanging around, playing maybe 10 games a season, filling in for the domestic cups and stuff, I wouldn't have much of a problem with that. I, I just mean in terms of Liverpool opting against signing a new centre-back this summer because we've now got Nath Phillips. I think that is a bit of a risk um, just because you know the way Liverpool want to play Liverpool have not played the Liverpool way this season um, the Liverpool way is really really high risk under Klopp yeah. we, you know we, we defend with essentially two players two centre-halves and everybody else bombs on everyone everyone else attacks the final third if they can almost so if you're putting Phillips in that system he's just a, that bit more exposed and I don't know, you, you, you just don't really want that limitation, but it, it is an interesting question, it's an interesting topic, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what Liverpool do around that situation, but regardless, I am happy for him, I think he's, it's it's great to see what he's done, and um, I think his performance against Burnley, I was, you know, I was made up with, he couldn't have performed any better. Yeah, it's one of them though, isn't it? It comes back to all that, that honesty, as you say, and sentimentality and stuff, and there's a reason that we're sat here and not running Liverpool's scouting department like Michael Edwards is, is because he'll make those tough calls. But we'll have to wait and see how it does end up playing out. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Well, let's talk then about Thiago before we get on to the final day of the season and look ahead to the Palace game because he's been growing in stature week in and week out. I remember after the, the Wolves away game, myself privately and so, some chats sort of saying that I'm not sure if Thiago is going to end up having the making of what Liverpool desired from him. And I suppose that comes back to that point you just referenced there of we've not seen the proper Liverpool, but we are now beginning to see the proper Thiago Alcantara, aren't we? Yeah, and I think it's, I wrote a piece recently, it's quite interesting that some of the games we've seen Thiago at his best in. So probably his debut against Chelsea, yep. first, uh, second half, obviously against 10 men. Um, against Burnley, against West Brom, and against Newcastle United, probably in recent times, all of those games are quite similar match scenarios in terms of Liverpool seeing virtually all of the ball, dealing with very little threat, and having to break down a block essentially. And although that's not going to be the case every week in the Premier League, that that's going to be the case fairly often with Liverpool especially now the, the level that they've achieved on the Jurgen Klopp and I think it'll be the case more so next season once we get Van Dijk and, and the likes back. Liverpool just have this way of really owning the pitch and attacking for most of the game and when that's the case having Thiago in your midfield as, as just that, that key to the door, you know that problem solver who can offer a bit of, bit of progression through the middle as opposed to the flanks where the fullbacks usually offer that penetration. He's just a really sensible signing, I thought, at the time, and a very useful player. We've seen it lately. We're going to see it even more next season. Um, 
But yeah, I think he's been great, and I don't think it's a coincidence that his his, his top performances have came in these match scenarios. Because that's that's in my opinion, largely what he's been signed for. He's been signed in those games where Liverpool need a solution. He he's gonna be that player because of his, you know, he, he is incredible in, in terms of the way he sees the game and his ability to execute passes that nobody else has even seen. And um, from your perspective, guy, what what have your thoughts changed then? Because you know, I've recalled recently you said to me that you know he's from your perspective at least. I think you said to me that he's um he's fell below expectations. Obviously, you're an Arsenal fan, so a little bit different. Yeah, no, I suppose, think, but... no, no, no. I, I, and I mean, I stand by what I did say at the time, and I, I, I think when you take the season as a whole, I do think he kind of has fallen below expectation. But I do take the point of he's been playing in a very different Liverpool team. I, th- I think maybe the way Liverpool envisaged it working was you think in play in, in the formation into which Liverpool would evolve and move into, you'd have the two centre-halves, whether that be Gomez and Van Dijk, Fabinho just in front of them. So you're protected there on the counter. And then you've effectively got a four-man line of from right to left, Trent, Henderson, Thiago and Andy Robertson, who all all of which can create something from nothing. We saw so many times last season that inside right pocket, Jordan Henderson whipping those crosses in towards Sadio Mane and how effective that was. We don't need to talk about Trent and Andy Robertson. And then Thiago in that left-hand pocket, just able to play those reverse passes, such a, such as what we saw at, even at Goodison Park right at the uh, start of the season in October. And of course, the game that really, I suppose, changed Liverpool's season with the, the injury to Van Dijk and, and whatnot. But no, for me, it was... And I get he, he obviously had three months on the sideline. No, obviously, given that tackle by Richarlison on him in the mentioned uh, Merseyside derby. But I just think a, a lot of the time he was maybe trying too hard almost, coming into the side knowing there was pressure on him, knowing that Liverpool weren't in great form. And certainly early on in his Liverpool career, rattling into a number of challenges he, quite frankly, didn't need to make and were themselves quite dangerous in a way, really. But I think now that he's got Fabinho behind him kind of permanently at the moment and he's he's beginning to get some understanding of what is going on around him. He's linking up quite well with Andy Robertson and I do think you are now beginning to see the best of him. But I do just think sort of certainly after the, the turn of the calendar year when he came into the side, as I say, I don't really think he was contributing as much as what you thought he would. Now, I'm not saying goals and assists. Obviously, he did get a goal against Southampton and he plays a number of key passes before the move actually develops. And I think that's what he is in the team for, as you said, to break down those teams who are sitting really deep. And I think you'll see it more and more next season. But I think there was a lot of expectation on his shoulders and he did maybe just just fall a bit below that. But I think you can certainly see the, the true player coming out in him now. Yeah, the, the Fabinho link, I think, is interesting. Um, because obviously he's, he's played a lot of the season, I suppose, without Liverpool's spine in place almost. Um, and once that spine is in place, or when it, whenever it has been, even half in place, he's looked. He has looked a different player. You know, he's looked a different player when Fabinho's been behind him. He looked great in the very very small period at Goodison Park and at Chelsea when he had basically Liverpool's usual players behind him. Um. And then once he has a full pre-season and they have, you know, fans in the ground, fans inside Anfield and stuff, I do think he'll he'll justify his worth. And not even that he has, even has to do that. But, and, and even his worth, you know, we, we paid something like, we're paying something like five million a year for the services, I think. Yeah. So it's, you know, a total of about 20 million. So he is 
you know, it'll be a long way before I start talking about how this has been a disappointing sign or anything like that. I mean, I think he's been really, really good. I think he'll only be. I think he, the issue is, is what is he? What is he? Twenty nine. I think when he comes in at that stage, you were thinking that this guy is a guy who has adapted to any situation he's been in before, and he's come in and he's been a world class operator straight away. And I don't think that was obviously it looked that way at Chelsea with effectively that spine, as you say, all in place, and he looked absolutely brilliant, albeit against ten men and against maybe a tactically naive Chelsea under Frank Lampard, but. No point in really going over old ground in that. I, th- I think the a- adaptation and obviously the, the old phrase of players always had, had to have time to gel. And I think that is the way. I think so many high-profile foreign stars, whether it be managers or players, even when Pep Guardiola came into England, get it round down their throats of, oh, the Premier League's the best league in the world. Oh, it's like no other league. It's so intense, this, that and the other. And I think they... In the end, I mean, Guardiola's first year in England was by no means a roaring success. And I think at times he kind of overthought things and overplayed on how intense it would be and therefore played into opposition's hands. And I think Thiago maybe a bit likewise came into it thinking, oh, this pace is meant to be so fast and therefore himself was flying around. And then actually after just maybe taking a bit of time to realise, has found the rhythm of it and now really is dictating games. Yeah, well, he, he did actually say, he did actually reference that um, you know, compared to Spain, Germany, and stuff, he said the technical is is the same. Mostly the tactics are mostly the same. He said the big difference in England is the is the speed. You know, the it, yeah. it, the games are just a lot quicker. And when you look at Thiago as a player, one thing he doesn't have on his side is speed. And then if you couple that alongside the fact that he's had less coverage around him, you know, the legs of Henderson, the the legs behind of of Gomez and Van Dijk. Fabinho to an extent has not been behind him for a lot of the time, so you know he, he's he's been put it this way he's not the quickest player and he's been put into a faster league with less coverage around him. So that's that's a. But it's one of those, isn't it? It's one of those where he's he's also got two yards in his head, though. I mean, you mentioned before Arsenal's my team, and we've got a midfielder in Granite Jacker who looks like he's stuck in mud half the time because he doesn't always he's not as quick and as mobile, which I think yeah. you could label it Tiago. But Tiago knows, and I think that's the big thing. I think he's cottoned on to right. I don't need to start charging around and needing to kick people up in the air. If I just keep my positioning right and look around and see what's about and start pulling the strings, then I can I can work ahead of all of these players. As so often, and when he was making those tackles, a lot of people were comparing it to Paul Scholes and how he used to rattle around in the United midfield and do likewise. But equally, Paul Scholes used to sit there and be a move or two ahead and just moving the opposition around and midfielders couldn't get near him. And I think now Thiago maybe is getting towards that stage. Yeah, I mean, I will will say I have been one to compare him to Scholes in terms of his ability on the ball, but then without the ball, maybe he's... I suppose a bit rash is maybe the word, but in terms of his actual desire to contribute, I've described him in the past, he's definitely not a luxury player. He's not the kind of player you have to carry. You know, someone like maybe James Rodriguez comes to mind as a luxury player who will just basically, Lionel Messi is the same, won't won't do anything without the ball. Um, Thiago was actually not like that. You know, some surprising numbers here. So this season in the Premier League, um, Tackles and interceptions per 90. Thiago's top for Liverpool. Um, he averages just over five tackles and interceptions per 90 in the Premier League this season. Second is Fabinho. Third is Kabach. Fourth is Milner. So the fact that Thiago's top of that 
shows he's he's active, he's really keen on the yeah. defensive side to, to do things like that. Um and in terms of pressing, he is he's behind three players, but those three players have haven't played as much as him. So he's, he's top of the list is Naby Keita. But again, this is he, he's only played about 5.8 full 90s. So he probably benefited from that. Similar, similarly, as Takumi Minamino, they're both on the same number. So they both press the most. But again, they've barely played. Top, top then really is Jota. And then second again is Thiago. So... He, he is active on the defensive side of the game. He's, n- he's not a, a luxury player that we have to carry or anything like that. He's just a player who, I think, you, you know, you've said it, he's been acclimatising a little bit. And he's been acclimatising in difficult circumstances without a spine. So I can't stress enough. I am really, I have no concerns about this player. V- very few concerns about this player. And I think next season, it, it sounds a bit cliche and it sounds a bit like what you would say about a player who, hasn't worked. Like people say it about Pogba a little bit, don't they? We'll see him next well, season. People, I was gonna say but, no, people said it for years with Urza when he arrived as well. And then you, you go and see the numbers he kind of put up in terms of assists. And maybe maybe for Tiago it has been a bedding in season and he can now really I don't think all of a sudden the, the assists is we don't anticipate to rock it up. But it's one of those with those defensive numbers you mentioned there. It's not the need to go and tackle all the time. It's that pressing anticipation and intercepting which is so key actually to the Jurgen Klopp way of playing because if you are tackling an opponent you can get caught up in that body to body the physical contact of it whereas if you intercept you're immediately on the front foot and on the transition to take the game to the opposition yeah that's it you know he's he, he, as I said he, I, I can't stress enough that he's he's not a problem he's, the system has been the problem around him and I think he's he's going to be safe moving forward um, so I've got no issues there and it's, it's, it's good to see that of late, when Liverpool really need players to step up, I think in this Champions League run, it's kind of been led, you know, kind of the players that have pushed the train, if you like, have been Alisson, uh, Thiago, Nath Phillips, and Trent. Trent yeah. And probably and Salah. Salah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those the players who've pushed the train, really. Even though Firmino's chipped in with a few goals lately and stuff. But yeah, it's been great to see him. I suppose, arrive when, when Liverpool need most. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. If Liverpool can make it five wins in a row, they'll be in the Champions League unless Leicester win by four more goals in their home game with Tottenham Hotspur. Chelsea going to Aston Villa on the final day as well. Josh, how do you see this one playing out? I'll go in with a big question first. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think... I think we'll be okay. I do. Um, are we talking about Liverpool, yeah? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean Liverpool, but I mean just, just the, the wide picture of it. I mean, ultimately, yeah, it is whether yeah. Liverpool are going to get it done. I mean, we've referenced 538 a few times throughout the season, their prediction model. And obviously it's not always correct, but at, at the minute, they've got Chelsea. Surprisingly, Liverpool are really high on this, a little bit higher than I, even I would have thought, but... Chelsea have got an 82% chance of qualifying for the Champions League in the current position. Liverpool have got a 91% chance of qualifying and Leicester a 27% chance. So, you know, those numbers are, again, a little bit surprising, I suppose, but those kind of capture, I suppose, just how wrong it would have to go for Liverpool 
to to not get in essentially. Um, I must say I don't think Chelsea away to Villa with fans in Villa Park and with Grealish back. I don't think that's a given. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But I do think Tuchel's got Chelsea to a very high level. So I think it will stay as it is personally. Um, and I think Liverpool Liverpool should come out of a, of Crystal Palace again at home. Fans in the stadium. Palace, I suppose, are on the beach, if you want to use that term. And Liverpool are very, very much not. So I can only see it going one way, one way really. I, I don't think there'll be any major surprises, but I suppose at the same time with the Premier League, you never know. The, the thing I, I find difficult to gauge with Chelsea is I think I'm right in saying, I've got it here in front of me, FB ref, that since Tuchel took charge when they drew 0-0 with Wolves in his first game, they've only lost the XG head-to-head once, and that was when they beat City recently, 2-1 away from home. So in terms of the numbers and the data, you're kind of expecting Chelsea to dominate in a game and win. That seems to be their style under Tuchel, but it's one of those, isn't it, where football can throw up all kinds of different possibilities. And you mentioned Grealish, but Ollie Watkins, he scored against Tottenham in midweek and he's a guy who will be looking to try and get to the, the Euros himself as well. So he might be able to do Liverpool a favour in that regard. And well, Leicester don't have an easy game, do they themselves in terms of Spurs going to the King Power Stadium? But I suppose we'll have to really wait and see how it plays out. All we do know is Liverpool, of course, up against Crystal Palace. And for all of the reasons we just referenced with Thiago, he could be a key player in this game, couldn't he? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Palace across the board, really, they're not really that good. <laughs> it's kind of as simple as that. Um, they're currently 13th in the table, but I think they're probably a little bit worse than that. Um, and I'll I'll use the numbers now to capture that. So, in terms of goals scored, they are 14th. And in terms of goals conceded, even though they kind of... I perceived as a, a good defensive side. They're actually 18th in the league for goals conceded. Um, and then in terms of expected goals, 18th. And expected goals against, 16th. In terms of shots, 18th. And in terms of shots against, 15th. So, to me, those are the performance numbers of a side between 15th and 18th, really, you know, in and around that. Um so that a team that and, and given that, you know, Roy Hodgson, this is his last game in charge, really. I think there's about seven players in the squad who are leaving, including the likes of Ben Teke and Andros Townsend and um Scott Dan might have been in there, I'm not too sure on that one. Yeah, yeah, he is. Sacho obviously is, is one in, in there. I think I read well, somewhere so. actually is up to eleven players whose contracts are Yeah, it's it's a fair few and all yeah. that. Um, and then they're, they're not they're not just no mark names either. The the players who have played quite regularly for Palace. Gary Cahill's so, another one as well. Yeah, Gary Cahill's another one. Yeah. Um. So you know, going into this game, to be honest, it it couldn't be Liverpool couldn't really have a better fixture for for considering the importance of it. Last game of the season, the way it's been presented looks looks perfect. You know, they they should have no interest in winning. Almost Liverpool have got a. I'm going to say a packed stadium. Liverpool have got fans in the stadium. Everything to play for. Mohamed Salah going for the golden boots. Champions League football. Um, it, it it should be an easy win. Should be. And, you know, going back to 538, Liverpool have got the highest win likelihood of the, of the week, of the weekend. Liverpool got a, a likely, 84% likely to win 
according to 538, a draw 12%, and a Palace win just 4%. Um, so Liverpool 84%, um, and the second best in the league for the weekend is Chelsea, but that's even that is only 63%. So for Liverpool to be, you know, as high as that, I, again, I can't really stress enough that this is one that Liverpool should absolutely win. Yeah, I hope you're not jinxed it there, but I, I do I do understand and share your confidence, to be honest. I mean, they've only two players in their squad palace who have scored more than five goals this season in the for them. Um Eberetche is he's on four, but of course he's injured anyway. Christian Benteke with ten and Wilfred Zaha top scorer with eleven, albeit as you said that Benteke is somewhat of a doubt for the game as well. But Wilfred Zaha is a player who in the past has caused issues for Liverpool and I suppose it's about for Liverpool keeping their composure and concentration and playing the game because we saw a number of times against both West Brom and uh, Burnley, incidentally, that those long balls forward, as much as they are meat and drink for someone like Nat Phillips, as you say, if they go in behind and they turn the Liverpool defence, there are still opportunities there for a few hairy moments. And I suppose if, if Ben Teke is fit, the aerial prowess that he has and the scoring record he's got at Anfield as well might be something to be slightly worried about yeah I think that's that's the area of concern really you know if you look at Palace's left side in the last game that they played they obviously had Zaha left, left of the front three and just behind Zaha as part of a midfield three they had Jeffrey Schlupp who you know isn't the best but he's quick um, so I can you know, if you've got those two players kind of doubling up on on Trent or facing Trent and Phillips, that feels like a little bit of a problem. But I, 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 aside from that, I can't really see Palace scoring apart from maybe a set piece. Um, so I don't think Liverpool have too much to cater for apart from Zaha, obviously Zaha's threat. Um, but interestingly, guy, actually, you know, Palace's last game came against Arsenal. Um, yeah. Did you catch the game? No, I was watching the Liverpool Burnley game. I have to say, um, I was actually, but... I was actually quite surprised by the numbers of the game because uh, Arsenal only actually took six shots. Yeah, second um, half, by all accounts, Palace did actually dominate somewhat, and Arsenal got the the two late goals, which I think adds a a lot of gloss to the, the scoreline in that. Yeah, I mean, it looks like Arsenal have seen most of the ball, you know, sixty nine percent of the of the possession and stuff, but to accumulate only six shots. And Palace post twelve, that's double. Um, so I suppose that suggests that they're not on the beach. But you know, at the same time, again, I, I think Liverpool are, should run out winners here. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to actually see Palace's approach as well, because there's been times under Roy Hodgson where, and it is going to be his final game, where they do kind of come out and try and go blow for blow. Back in December, even at Sellers Park, albeit Liverpool ran out seven nil winners, but. Alisson did have to make a few saves in that game and there were chances for Crystal Palace to come forward and really have a go at Liverpool. But, of course, Liverpool were ruthless in attack and Liverpool 11 goals in the last two Premier League meetings with Crystal Palace because the 4-0 win at Anfield last season came, didn't it? The, the final home game or final game Liverpool played before being crowned champions. And that night, it looked as though Palace were all set up to be very deep and sit sit low and have Wilfred Zaha to go on the break. But after... 15 minutes, I think he picked up an injury in the warm-up and they tried to get him going. And then he had to get subbed off, didn't he? And they were, they were effectively sitting ducks, but I suppose it's one of those, if Trent can keep Zaha quiet, and he's certainly got the, the speed to be able to do so, 
then uh, yeah, Liverpool hopefully won't have any issues. Yeah, I mean, Palace have actually conceded eight goals in the last three games. Uh, they conceded three against Southampton, two against Villa, and three against Arsenal, even though two of them were very late. Um, so, you know, if, if Liverpool can keep up their, their scoring form of late, their ability to generate chances and stuff like, you know, we didn't mention the expected goals against Burnley, but Liverpool posted an XG against Burnley of 2.9, which is, you know, that's really high, according to a stats bomb that was. Um, and, you know, obviously in the first half, we didn't put too many of them away. But if you're generating shots with 2.9 expected goals, you're probably going to win most games, really, unless you're finishing absolutely shocking. So, you know, going into this Palace game, um, if we can keep if we can keep Palace's right uh, Palace's left side quiet, you know, with the likes of Trent. The only, the only issue is with that, you know, Liverpool's right side is the most defensively fragile. You know, you've got Thiago, who we've addressed, I suppose isn't the most mobile of all players. Salah doesn't track back much, but I, I, I am inclined to think some of that is managerial instructions and stuff. And Trent, obviously, receives a bit of criticism for his 1v1 ability and things. Um, so, you know, I am slightly concerned about that left side, but other than that, I think Liverpool should be okay, and I think Liverpool should have enough, specifically in attack, to, uh, to put Palace to the sword, basically. Would you be inclined at all to start Oxlade-Chamberlain, maybe even on the left instead of Sadio Mane? Because I know, obviously, Diogo Jota's out for the season now, but Mane had that big chance, didn't he, early on at Turf Moor? And he, he seemed to be getting back towards some kind of form, two goals in three before he threw his toys out of the pram at Old Trafford. And then against West Brom, he didn't have a particularly good game. And Burnley as well, just in the box. He's been going on a lot longer as well than I think we we care to really mention for Sadio Mane. It seems since the turn of the year that he's doing all that industry and work outside of the box. But as soon as he gets to within the sight of the goalposts, all of his confidence just seems to evaporate. Yeah, he's he's not playing his natural game when it comes to putting the ball on the back of the net. Um, funnily enough, I played football early in the week and I was playing for a team who just gradually, we just couldn't score, couldn't score, couldn't score. And it does get to a point where it does get in your head. I, I experienced it myself. You know, you get you do, you do get presented with shooting opportunities and rather than just finishing naturally, you, you do just overthink it, take an extra second and it does get in your head and I think it's it's certainly got in Sadio Mane's head to the extent that I do think he needs a, a summer break come back completely refreshed and hopefully it's kind of a distant memory by then um, but it, it is really weird in terms, of, in terms of starting Ox, I, I wouldn't even though Ox did look good against Burnley, to be honest when it comes to, to Chamberlain although he has I think a quality when it comes to his ability to strike the ball. I I, I have toyed with the thought of using him as a Trent alternative, um, just as a means of giving Trent some form some form of break. Obviously, it's a bit late now; it's a bit pointless now. Um, but whenever Trent does get a break, we usually use Milner or we use Nico Williams. And I just think if you look at Ox, considering how offensive our right back role is. Ox doesn't maybe have the quality of strength on the ball, possession-wise, but he's certainly got the mobility, the intensity to get up and down the wing. Bit well, of a traditional the, winger. His last, his last six months at Arsenal, he played as a right wing-back, and he was absolutely brilliant, including in the 
2017 FA Cup final. He was absolutely phenomenal as a right wing back for Arsenal. And I think actually it was part of the reason in the end he took the move to Liverpool was because he didn't want to be playing in that position. He wanted to be playing as a central midfield player, which I think Jurgen Klopp had told him he would be. I've always, I've thought myself in the past that he might be. I think he's got such a good skill set, hasn't he, Ox, that I wouldn't be inclined one day if if he got maybe a full pre-season into it, trying to see him as a false nine just to see what he could do in there because he's got the intensity for the pressing. His passing and his power certainly would fit into that position. And I I don't know whether he strikes the ball cleanly enough, like you said, to be a forward player. I don't know. But um, no, I just wondered if he could play off that left-hand side. I mean, Origi seemingly has been on the bench for the last few games and looks so he's getting back towards fitness, but very much in the deep freeze, it seems. And, with with Jota injured, it seems as though there's not really any other option than Sadio Mane going there. I just thought Ox coming in off the left and taking his goal as he did, would he maybe be up for consideration? Yeah, I mean, he has played there for Liverpool a few times, but he, mm. to me, he's, ne- he's never looked overly natural there. He's never looked... It, it just doesn't... It, although it seems right on paper, you know, he's quick, he can shoot, he's right-footed. It, it feels like a fit. It hasn't really felt like that when it's been when it's in action. Yeah. 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 Um and in midfield, again he's got he's got a really well rounded skill set. And in midfield he can certainly impose his intensity on the game, his ability to carry the ball, his ability in transition and stuff. Um and his ability as I suppose a really offensive number eight who joins the attack in, in certain moments. A bit like a De Bruyne to an extent, obviously a little bit different. But Again, but in terms of his possession game, it doesn't really suit midfield. It's something yeah. about the way he play, the way he play. So he's never really set a, a proper position for himself. Um, and obviously he stated quite quite publicly, I don't want to play as a fullback. I don't want to play as a wingback or whatever. But I would be inclined to, I would be interested to see what his response would be if Klopp said to him, moving forward. I will use it in midfield. I will use it in the front line, but I can get you more minutes if you're willing yeah. to. If you're willing to um, back up Trent when Trent needs a rest, I would, I'd be interested to see what Ox would say. It's also one of those qualities, isn't it, that James Milner, of course, isn't going to go on forever. And one of his great qualities for Liverpool is being able to be that utility man. And much like bringing it full circle, we spoke at the top about Matt Phillips and how maybe an answer was staring Jurgen Klopp right in in the face from the beginning in terms of replacing James Milner long-term, someone who predominantly is a central midfield player, but can plug gaps here and there. Maybe Ox, if he does buy this time and has that patience, is that man. I know there's been a few sort of questions as to whether he could leave Liverpool this summer. I think that would be a silly move because he, he ticks so many boxes, doesn't he? He's a, he's a great player. He's got a good skill set. He's a homegrown player as well. And potentially can be that utility man to cover more than one position with his versatility. But um, unless you've got any more thoughts on him, Josh, we, we best crack on with a prediction for the Palace game. So in terms of Palace, I'm going to go for 3-0. Um, a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a statement prediction, I suppose. But just considering all the aspects that we've covered, you know, the fact that Palace, the season's kind of finished, the manager's leaving, half the squad's leaving, it's at Anfield. There's fans in the stadium. Liverpool have been performing fairly well recently. Salah's going for the Golden Boots. There's just so many. Liverpool are going for the Champions League. Um, there's just so many pros on the Liverpool side compared to the cons, maybe. Um, 
Yeah, it does feel a bit after the Lord's Mayor show for Palace, doesn't it? With the, the send-off for Roy Hodgson at Selhurst Park, as you say, the players out of contract and stuff. Yeah, maybe they might be on the beach already. Yeah, I will say as well, Roy Hodgson's got... I don't mind him, but he's, he's, he's got this really weird um, trait about, his, about himself where he doesn't seem to be overly fussed about actually winning too much. Um, hence why he's been really well-suited to Palace for a few years because he is very much a steady mid-table guy who um, won't really drop below that. But he, apart from a season with Fulham where he did kind of exceed expectations, he is that kind of steady, you know, and it, whenever he's in interviews or, you know, he's facing a big side, a really big side, he, he, he don't, the ambition really to be something more. Maybe it's because he's been in the game for so long and he's kind of, yeah, if that was going to happen, it would have happened yeah. already. But he's just, sometimes he just takes part a little bit. Saw that with him, we saw that though with his time at Liverpool, didn't we? In terms of some of the comments he came yeah. out with in the press, not really quite getting the gravitas of being the Liverpool manager. I mean, complete polar opposites between he and Brendan Rodgers, who Brendan Rodgers knew what it was type thing and it was something big bestowed upon him to be the Liverpool manager at such a young age, whereas Hodgson, as you say, later in his career, it, it didn't really seem to like fussed him all too much. But Yeah, but yeah. The, the winning mentality specifically, though, is, is something that it should go without saying that every manager has that about him. But you'd be really surprised to say how it's not really such a common trait. Um, and it's something that Jürgen Klopp has certainly instilled in the club since he's came you know winning has to be achieved winning has to happen at a, at a, at a club as big as Liverpool um, whereas I think when Hodgson was at Liverpool it was just kind of like you know we'll, we performed well we didn't win but let's not talk about the fact we didn't win um, and although we cover performances more than results on this podcast I still think that when you get a certain level of job, you 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 have to focus on winning. Winning has to be the main thing. Um, yeah. And Hodgson has, has always really went against that a little bit. So, but hopefully that should benefit Liverpool in the, in this final game. All right. So you reckon three 0 I'm going to say two one. Uh, for some reason, I just think it is going to be edgy and a bit nervy. Albeit, I think ten thousand inside Anfield will play a huge part. One word answer to this one, Josh. Just before we go, is Mo Salah going to win the Golden Boot? Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, a third golden boot for him. Be interesting to see if he does get it done. But yeah, that's it from us for this edition of Analyzing Anfield. Of course, the uh, final episode before the end of the season. We'll be back through the course of the summer. And I'm sure, Josh, yourself getting into a few transfer picks and analyzing what transfer business Liverpool do get done. It might be a busy one. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully, Liverpool won't sign anyone very, very early, which has been the case for most other seasons. Because if that doesn't happen, It'll give me and Dave the opportunity to uh, do a little bit of a squad building exercise um, and see what we'd actually do with the squad over the summer. Um, but, you know, it could be a case of as soon as Liverpool finish against Palace, we announce Ibrahim Kanate or something like that. You know, that's the way it's been the case for the past few years. So hopefully we'll get to uh, some incessant transfer bits over the summer, though. Yeah, interesting. And we'll have to wait and see how that does play out. But from myself, Guy Clark and Josh Williams, thanks for your time and your company here on Blood Red. It's bye for now. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.